Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. matters where we seek to be of one mind in Jesus Christ, trusting that when God speaks, he speaks with the intent that we speak back, that he doesn't speak gibberish or mumbo jumbo, but gives us real words, real truth, real way and life. My guest today, as we continue our trek through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Pastor Peter Ill, Crumpling Papers, Pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstead, Illinois. Pastor Sean Smith, uh, Pastor of St. Paul's, St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and our sometimes guest and friend, Pastor John Sias, Secretary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, pulling his head out of the bylaws just for a little bit and getting back into, well, probably what got him to be a pastor in the first place, that truth I was talking about just a moment ago. We're picking up where our host from last week left us off, that is, in the Augsburg Confessions Apology, around paragraph 20. And as I start to read it, we're going to find out right away, oops, they left us at a bad spot. we got to go back at least half a paragraph to talk about some really useless words. And that's actually the reason they're here. The reason these words are here is not because we think they're important for you to know. It's because this demonstrates just how convoluted Roman Catholic theology had become in the deep Middle Ages. That they were arguing over uh, splitting hairs. How many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? So, welcome, gentlemen. Great to be here. Good to have you here. Let's just jump right in then. So, and I'm going to have to back us up as soon as we do. Paragraph 20 starts off with this. It says, this whole matter was made up by idle men. And you got to love the snark, idle men, people wasting their time talking about nothing. But what's the whole matter? The whole matter is this idea of, now, listener, when I say these words, don't turn off because they're they're, they're useless words. That's the point. And they sound useless. So you're going to be like, oh, these words are horrible sounding. And you're right. And I'll explain them, but only in a way that you can forget them right away. So so the whole point is is to demonstrate their uselessness. The divide between a merit of condignity and the merit of congruity, which is a good work that's done for its own value or a good work that is done for the value of the grace that made you do it. And if you have one and not the other, then you're okay with God. If you have the other one, you're not okay with God. And what we're saying is people who are arguing in this way are idle. (laughs) They got nothing better to do than to destroy your faith in the scriptures by arguing about whether or not your good works are good enough based on how good they've good it did. Right. And and how authentically you meant for them to be. And what paragraph 20 is going to go on to like explain to us here then is the people arguing about this did not know how forgiveness of sin happens and how by God's judgment and the terrors of conscience, trust in works is driven out of us. That is, the whole point of Christian theology is not to get us to go back and argue about whether our good works were good enough, but that forgiveness sets us free to stop worrying about our good works and just do them. Secure hypocrites always judge that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, whether the habit is present or is not present, because people naturally trust in their own righteousness. What that means is that 
when you start telling people that if you do it with a really authentic heart, then it counts, well, the secure sinner, the hypocrite, the unbeliever is going to be like, oh, yeah, well, I got that. No problem. Got it covered. Not a big deal at all. But on the other side, terrified consciences waver and hesitate. That is, the believer says, oh, did I do it good enough? I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe I'm not even really a Christian. They then seek and heap up other works in order to find peace. Such consciences never think that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, and they rush into despair unless they hear, in addition to the teaching of the law, the gospel about free forgiveness of sins and righteousness of faith. Melanchthon, of course, always bringing us back to, hey, guys, it's about the forgiveness of sins so that we might trust in Christ. Yeah? Thoughts about that, gentlemen? Yeah, I mean, it really does rob the uh, the conscience of the peace, mm-hmm. the, especially the peace that surpasses all understanding. And actually, we're going to see this in our congregations, um, as most of our congregations in the LCMS follow the three-year lectionary. In the Matthew reading, uh, uh, chapter 5, coming up for this coming Sunday, uh, Jesus is talking about being salt and light, right? right. And, he, and he deals with another kind of churchy term, antinomianism, right? You know, he, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Christ is our righteousness, and when our faith is in that, then good works are naturally going to flow forth. But if you're kind of looking for the good works, if you're looking for, you know, um, uh, the living the Christian life as assurance that you're in Christ, then it, it robs you of that peace because it's, is it good enough? You, you said that well. Um, but when we find our righteousness in Christ, when we're pointed to our baptism and yes, this sovereign God who created the whole world, right, has loved you so much that he has saved you. You are saved. When we speak affirmatively like that, my conscience is in peace, and then I will naturally have good good works flow forth. I can't imagine a more disturbing idea that my good works are only good enough if I really mean them. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It also sticks out to me how this is really, really polarizing. For the secure sinner, then they're going to be able to say, oh yeah, I got it covered. It's all under control. But for the sinner who's not so secure, they will be absolutely terrified. And so either it's going to reinforce the behavior of the secure sinner, or it is going to drive to despair the sinner who's not secure with their identity in Christ. So if your identity's in you, then who needs Jesus anyway? Right. If your identity is in yourself, though, and in your ability to fix it, and you realize that you cannot, where can you turn from there? We know that we turn and simply cry, Lord, have mercy. And we we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus uh, like a beggar. And he will come for us with his grace and his mercy, because that's exactly what he's promised to do. But if we just say, I can do it out of the good intentions of my heart, Personally, my good intentions have never gotten me anywhere uh, except really, really bummed out. Yeah. It, there, there's a whole group of Christianity out there. I've heard this from Lutherans, too, uh, who will speak as if God only looks at the heart is good news. Uh, you know, God isn't going to judge you based on the outside. He's only going to judge you based on the inside. It's How like, scary is that? That's worse. I would rather he judge me based on what I've actually done than on what I've thought about doing for Pete's sake. You know, what an awful thing. That would not be good news. Um, it's kind of interesting. I think this is a great counterexample for us as 
Uh, if you look at the beginning of this uh, little section in paragraph 19, you know, they make up these angels dancing on the head of a pin distinctions because they're trying to avoid being called Pelagians. They say, mm. we know we're not supposed to be Pelagians. We're no, we know we're not supposed to say crassly, ah, we're just saved by works. And yet the power, the appeal, the draw of human merit is so strong, of self-justification. Mm -hmm. They have to invent all this kind of highfalutin theology here on the head of a pin to come up with a way to justify that idea that their works are still necessary and still do something toward their salvation. And uh, I, I think we as Lutherans can fall prey to this too in doing that kind of, well, I'm not a fill-in-the-blank theology, instead of embracing what we actually are and embracing uh, that wholehearted, full-throated truth that we are justified in Christ and Christ alone. Right. The idea that works need to merit something, in, in my mind, only shows how how evil we really are, that we don't think good is good enough. Like yeah. it needs to earn something or, or buy something somehow, right? That, and so you almost say there, John, that you need to justify your self-justification to yourself, and you go through all manner of backflips to make it happen. It gets messy. But it runs completely counter to, like Sean was talking about a few minutes ago, this upcoming uh, text for the three-year lectionary series. Uh, Jesus says, uh, with your works, let your works so shine before men so that they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your works aren't to convince you that you're a Christian. Your works aren't to convince your neighbor that you are a Christian, but your works are to convince uh, your works are to show your neighbor how good your God is. <laughs> he looks behind him at the guy's got. No one can see this, but there was a gentleman named Andy Bates making fun of Peter behind him. Peter got thrown oh. off a little bit, and he only turned around after Andy was gone. There's nothing there. He's like, "What's going on?" You know that text from uh, from from Sunday. I was reading Doctor uh, uh, Doctor Gibbs' commentary today about that a little bit, and. What I love in that, let your light shine, he points out that that is a third-person imperative. We're talking about big words. Now we go grammar on it. But what that means is it's a command. It's not, hey, guys, you should do this. It's, I command your good works to shine forth from you. That he's actually, uh, how do I say it, reviving them, vivifying them, making them alive, declaring them just at that moment. Thank you for using the word vivifying. It is one of my favorite words for a couple of reasons that we never use anymore. Uh, to vivify means to make alive. And it sounds fun because it's vivify. It just it's a good word. Humbles. It's great. Um, but this is exactly what Jesus does for the Christian. He makes us alive. Dead men do no good works, but as made alive in Christ people, we do good works. We are vivified and made alive. The whole point of that, how can salt be made salty again? It can't. How can a city on a hill not be seen? This is insane, but that's what fallen man is, and I command you, shine again. It's it's like the gospel coming out of the Beatitudes again. I, I love Gibbs commentary. If you've never seen it, you guys should check it out. But Well, yeah. and, and then here too, it's helpful to talk about something I was gonna talk maybe a little bit down the road as in paragraph 22, it talks a little more about this kind of uh, tension that we have. But the, since we're on the topic of the light and shining and so forth, um, the image of fire, which was their light source at that time, is actually really helpful for us to understand the right understanding of faith and good works, right? So the fire has to have, it consumes fuel. It has to consume that fuel. And as it does, it produces light, mm. right? So also our faith, right? Our faith consumes uh, the gifts of God, right? We, we feed upon that. It apprehends the grace of God, and it will produce the good works. 
it 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 can't help it. Like if it's feeding right. on the fuel, it's gonna be there. Right. If Jesus makes you salt, you're gonna be salty. Like there's, it, there's no way to avoid it. If he says rise from the dead, you're gonna rise from the dead. If he says I forgive you, you're clean. Yeah. And trying to deny that or try to convince, see, really, what so much of this law-based theology is trying to do is trying to convince the unbeliever to act like a Christian. Okay? Whether it's the unbeliever within you or the unbeliever who's just in the in the the visible church, trying to kind of manhandle them into being good enough, rather than trusting there's to, the word's going to do it on its own, and some just won't believe too, yeah. right? And, and another th- helpful thing to point out here as we're talking about these distinctions, less people think that this was just a a uh, Reformation era situation that was <laughs> dealt with. We're still dealing with these yeah. things today, and and in part, some of it is the good works that, as we commonly use the the phrase "good works," we tend to think of loving service towards our neighbors, you know, serving as soup kitchens, and and certainly, you know, if if you're putting your trust in those things, then right, you're kind of off there. Um, but uh, it also comes to, and this kind of comes out of Reformed theology at the time of the Reformation and John Calvin and so forth as well, but the uh, the sovereignty of God, folks, right? You know mm-hmm. that whatever we do, we have to talk about the sovereignty of God. And a good portion of American evangelicalism is centered around this idea that you know we have to give God all the glory, and and we create whole worship services that that form around this, right? And if that's the case, then I'm never going to give God the glory that He deserves because I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I'm a fallen creation. It's going to always fall short. And so if I'm kind of looking to um, giving God the glory and I'm, and I'm, you know, singing hymns to this end, it's, it's insufficient. Right. Um, and so I'd much rather trust my bet. I'd much rather be Lutheran if I'm honest, because well, I am, uh, nothing, but, but it's also biblical truth. There's nothing wrong with sola dea gloria, right? To God be no. the glory, but you're right in that there's this radical overemphasis on it. That right. ignores Jesus' own words. Yeah. I don't get my glory from people. <laughs> right. It, it, it's the starting point, right? Yeah. And and so for the Reformed, their starting point is sovereignty of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. It's one of our articles of faith, but it's not our starting, starting point. point. Our starting point is justification. Yeah, the right cross. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we uh, are very subtly tempted to make some of our good works our ability to worship. Mm. I go to church. And instead of looking at going to church as this is the place where I hear the forgiveness of my sins in the absolution, in the preaching, in the reading of scriptures, where I remember my baptism, where Jesus washed me and where I feast on his body and blood. Instead of that, we focus on I come to church to worship God. I'm all about worshiping God. Don't get me wrong. But it's really, really important that it is secondary. First, we are forgiven. Then Jesus opens our lips and our mouths can declare his praise. It's like wanting to get rewarded for eating dinner, you know? Like, is is it a good work to go eat dinner? Like, should should somebody pay me to go eat dinner? No, I go eat dinner because I need it, right? And that's why I go to church. But if you're going to pay me to eat, go for it. Yeah. Uh, let's not stop <laughs> that. At, at Pizza pizza Ranch? No, Pizza, what'd you say earlier? Uh, I got to come from uh, from our text study where we have Pizza Buffet at, uh, in the town where I get to serve in Milstadt. It's a beautiful little uh, locally owned place. That is fantastic. Come, coming... I'm sorry. Can I? Just, any thoughts yeah. before we go so, on? Well, uh, coming back to this, the way we worship, then too, it is completely. There, there's a very fundamental difference between the way Lutherans worship and pretty much everyone else. Yes. Uh, in this, in this sense, I, we I was, use an organ. They use a guitar. Well, <laughs> no, it's not. It. It's not the difference. No, I'm talking about substantive things. There you go. Um, and and especially in our hymnody, in the very substance of the songs that we sing. Um, 
a good Lutheran hymn is always centered on the cross, right? And the right. means of grace. Right. Um, and, and we're not very concerned about singing about the beauty of the mountains and the trees. And, you know, not that we don't acknowledge those things, not that they don't have their place in God's good creation. Right. Um, but I am more concerned um, because of what scripture teaches me with that starting point of the cross. Whereas you will see of your American evangelical reform tradition and so forth, they're much more concerned about the sovereignty of God. The so they're, they're yeah. talking about the glory of his creation and right. so forth. Um, and, and yeah, we have a very fundamental difference on what we sing. I thought we were going to go toward, I mean, you kind of did, but I want, I want to take it further there. I mean, the, the, the real difference between Lutheran worship, if we can even call it that, let's call it biblical Gottesdienst, right? The divine service of the holy God to his people and what we might call man-centered worship masquerading as Christian worship is the direction it's going. Is it going up or is it coming down? What the Bible teaches is that we enter God's presence and he comes down to us. And he purifies us. And yeah, does our prayer rise like incense after that? Absolutely. But we're not going in to call him down. We're not going down to climb up to him. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Only Jesus, right? And then he comes down to us. So that that basic different direction of worship is so key to everything else. That's why our hymns are good, as they point us back to that he's coming down to us again and again. That, that I mean, the Lord's Supper, right? You got these rails between you and the chancel to keep you out of the holiest of holy places. And what does he do? He comes down and he crosses that rail and goes straight into you. What a radical difference from just having to stand there and sing and hope he's listening. Huh? Yeah. And, and just the way that we, again, structured the, what's the first thing we do in the, the historic liturgy of the church and what we do as Lutherans. Beg for mercy. Is, well, we, we have the invocation. Yeah. We invoke the mm. presence of God. We literally call down his name, come down and serve us with your gifts. And then the next thing that we do is we confess our sins and we receive the absolution, the cross at work in your life, right? You are forgiven. I mean, everything just flows forth in, in our divine service, our God esteems, um, uh, centered on the cross in our hymnody and what we uh, include in our liturgy. And so it's very fundamental different. And this Godestine is declarative. God tells us how it is. He announces that our sins are forgiven. He announces that we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I realize now that this is like two weeks old, it's old news. Uh, but thinking back a little bit to the inauguration, uh, they read from the Beatitudes from uh, the New Living Translation. God blesses those who recognize their need for him. God blesses those. God blesses those. Instead of the way the way we got to read it in church on Sunday, blessed are those who. Jesus tells us how it is. Right. He doesn't just describe God's grace. And this goes back to what Sean was saying again before about our hymnody. It is declarative of the cross, not just in general, but for you. And so we talk about what God has done for us, not in a secondary sense, but in a, you, dear Christian, are forgiven and absolved and beloved by Jesus. And that's how it is. Um, and we don't talk about grace. We talk grace. Yeah, the thy strong word bespeaks us righteous. You're listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. We're live right now in studio. If you want to call us with a question or comment about the text or just a chewish out for being Lutheran, you can. 1-800-730-2727. We'd love to have you join us in the conversation. We're going to move on to paragraph 21 in Apology. That's Defense of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. It reads this way. So, the adversaries, that's the Roman Catholics, teach nothing but... The righteousness of reason, that's what we could figure out with our own brains without the revelation of God, or 
certainly about the law. They see the law just like the Jewish people, that would be the Pharisees, and the Israelites of old, see Moses' veiled face. And I think we should spend some time talking about that scripture reference there, the veil of Moses, really important stuff. In self-secure hypocrites, that is, those who trust themselves and don't see how evil they are, who think that they fulfill the law, they, this is the false teaching, stirs up assumptions and empty confidence in works and cause them to have contempt for the grace of Christ. This is what we were just saying a moment ago. But that, so, so I already think I'm doing just fine. You come along and tell me, be a good person, you'll be fine. I'm like, okay, uh, not a problem. I'll be fine. On the other hand, they also drive timid consciences to despair. That is, the one who's like, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm not doing so well. You come along and you say, well, do good works. And you try. You're like, I'm not doing so well. Do more good works. And what happens is you end up just despairing and laboring, as it says here, the timid labor with doubt. They can never experience what faith is or how effective it is. Why? Not because they're not believers, but because they're not giving that object of faith to cling to, not being declared righteous, and so they can't trust that they are. So at last, they completely despair. And there, I think he means, you know, it is possible to fall away from the faith. The way you do it is you're told to trust in your good works so long that you finally just say, I guess I'm damned. Might as well live like it. Yeah? This is a, a, such a great, uh, clear law gospel distinction here. And the 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 danger of tossing a guy a bone, you know, yeah. uh, and in Walter's Law and Gospel, he will tolerate no mixing of the two and and spends a lot more pages than seminary students care to read, I think, uh, <laughs> describing the importance of that. But, uh, you know, this and the, the previous, all that stuff about condign and congruent merits, the lengths to which we'll go to take the slightest hint that our merits and worthiness mean something, and that will run rampant over everything else in our souls. And, uh, but we all have the tendency, you know, to be nice, and hmm. and we think it's nice to take a guy that thinks that his merits are worth something and and try to direct him mostly to Christ, but still give him a little room to wiggle, you know, and and that's where the confession and and Walter both say, no, don't do it, man. It wasn't uh, Luther. You're, you're killing L- the guy. Luther says something like, "Give Adam a finger, he'll take the arm." Yeah, right? Yeah, something like that. At yeah. least the apocryphal Luther, uh, Luther apocryphal came up Luther. with a bunch of good stuff. <laughs> I need to meet that guy, gentlemen. Well, and what they're essentially saying here is that faith necessarily demands an object. We mm-hmm. we know this, right? And and, and explain to which it, it though. Break that down. What okay. is it? Because that's that's like, I mean, for us pastor types, that's like dull language. But for for it's not the way normal people talk, right? I'm talking um, about objects in my life to my children. Do I? <laughs> I know. Oh, sorry, you, you've rendered you, you, me speechless you, you, because you pastors. <laughs> you just assumed that pastors talk like normal people, that's, which is uh, a huge thing. assumption. So that's why we got to bridge the gap, right? So um, it, it works like love, right? Um, mm. you, you have to have an object for love, mm. right? Uh, it, it's 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 just ethereal to use a big word it, it's it's out there it's it's not attached to anything if it's just general love and it thus serves no one right right and so faith is is the same way it works the same way faith necessarily demands that object something which it clings to a foundation that it rests and is built upon right and the, essentially what they're saying here in this paragraph is what is that foundation of which your faith is clinging to? Is it to your works? Because if so, you don't realize what you're saying because you're robbing yourself of so much peace. That's a, that's a shaky foundation. Hmm. Um, it's going to come crumbling underneath you. Or is it on the declarative 
word of God's forgiveness. Um, to use, uh, I, I hate to be one of these guys, but a movie reference, right? Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Um, the the big breakthrough uh, for Matt Damon in that movie, the uh, character that he plays, is uh, when Robin Williams um, says, "It's not your fault." Right. And he's like, yeah, I know. Like he's trying to wrestle with it in mm. his mind. But Robin Williams just keeps declaring it to him. It's not your fault. He, he's not interested in any kind of justification. He's just saying it is not your fault. Right. Um, so also that's in, in a very different way, but because but, uh, <laughs> it is our fault yes. and our sin. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's the same kind of declarative. Mm. I don't care if you believe it yet. I'm going to keep declaring it to you. And when you believe that God's word is sure and true and he cannot lie, it's just going to hit me right. between the nose. And, and it's like, wow, I'm kind of cling to that because. I have no hope on he, the other He's not end. declaring forgiveness to you because you believe it. He's declaring it to you so that you believe it, right? right. I, I love your, your use of love as the description then for what an object has, that, that these love, hope, faith, all these things need to be pointed at some other thing. They can't exist by themselves. So everybody has an object for their faith. The question is how trustworthy, how valuable is your object? I have faith in sunshine. You know, okay, great. How's that going to handle the Sahara Desert or whatever, right? So our faith is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and space as God's justification of mankind. That's our object. And it's something that is worth being is trustworthy enough to be put into as opposed to me right works always comes back to me because if i hope in me as it says here it drives us back into despair yeah if i have to count on myself i either need to go do my spiritual exercises and get big and buff and strong spiritually or i am going to break down in tears uh if it's all about me it's all or nothing um and it can't realistically be about me so it needs to be about Jesus, our Savior, the one who comes and takes on flesh for us. What a paradox how we, we know this as Lutherans, as Christians. We know this. It can't be about me. It shouldn't be, be about me. He must increase. I must decrease. And yet we hunger for it to be about me. And we fight for it. Right? We strive for it. And we know that too. That's the concupiscence, the original yeah. sin that's within us. And, and the reason that God's grace and the forgiveness of sins is something that keeps coming. Hmm. So that, that Christ hopefully continues to become something more and more in our lives as we realize we're not getting better at this. Uh, we're just finding out how much more of him we need. Uh, and that's this veil veil on Moses' face. We'll come back to that. Veil on Moses' face is where we should pick up. On the other side of this break, Concord Matters looking to be a one-minded Christ because his word makes it so. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This week on His Times Daily Lectionary Study, we'll be looking at most of 2 Timothy and a little bit starting on the book of Titus, the last two pastoral epistles, learning both what it means to be a pastor, what a pastor should do, but also what it means to be a Christian and how both who Jesus is and what he's done is a calling on your life. And that calling is forgiveness. Join us weekday mornings at 8 a.m. for our study and tune in early to get your daily devotions hand-delivered to you right here on KFUO. 
Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth across the room to a speaker system in your home or listen on radios that have built-in smartphone cradles. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the clear gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. As a dissenting religious movement within the Church of England, the Puritans sought to create a model religious community in the New World, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. John Cotton, son of a prominent lawyer and an influential New England Puritan leader, drafted the first law code for the colony in 1636, advised by magistrates to make a draft of laws agreeable to the Word of God, which may be the fundamentals of this commonwealth. Cotton's published abstract became known informally as Moses His Judicials. Formerly educated in Hebrew, Cotton drew heavily from passages in Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. His abstract was never adopted exactly as written, but the impact of Cotton's code greatly influenced Massachusetts law and law for the New Haven colony, which became Connecticut. Engage with the Bible in all its impact and influence. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. You're listening to Cross the Fence on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we are seeking to be of one mind by resting on the confession of the Lutheran Church. Our symbols, the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, talking with Pastor Peter Eel of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul's Winehill and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and Pastor John Sias, Secretary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We are in Apology 4. We just kind of finished... Paragraph 21, we could move on, but we want to talk about the veil over Moses' face, because what a gnarly, if I can say that word, gnarly, comma, vivifying passage of Scripture. Go ahead and read that yeah, for us. I'll go ahead and read it and then let Sias uh, talk about it. Since we have such—oh, so this is 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with, un- with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's our text. <laughs> Just a remarkable image here, I think. And, mm. and in the historical context, when you think of, you know, where does Moses put the veil on and uh, what's been taking place? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what were, was the reaction of the Israelites to seeing what took place on the mountain, uh, of which these little visits in the tabernacle were, uh, were an afterglow, uh, you know, let us not hear that voice anymore or see this thing lest we die. You know, right. Moses, you go in and talk with God. We'll listen to what you have to say, but that's about it. That's the glory of what Paul calls the, this ministry of condemnation, the work of the law. And and they can't bear to look at that unveiled because what will happen? You know, even reflected in the face, the face of the prophet, 
you know, the law is going to kill us. But if we hang a veil over it, we can kind of, you know, accommodate it in the corner of the living room and it looks all right when we light it up. <laughs> and uh, what a metaphor for how the uh, the Catholic Church of that day and, and our sinful hearts tend to use the law. You know, well, the thing is pretty bright and scary, but, you know, put a little gauze over there and, and, and I can deal with the thing. We can We can manage it, you know. And so uh, we, unlike Moses, are, are very bold, you know, to take the veil off and let the law do its work and say, you know what, all your merit, all your worthiness, uh, filthy rags, you need Christ. And then we can be very bold in him and something new happens. But uh, just a marvelous image. The Confessions use this a number of times and, hmm. and Luther and uh, it's it's a great picture that I think rela- very relatable to us today. Two two jumps off of that. One, uh, maybe maybe Sean, while I'm talking about the other one, you can you can bring some Walther to bear. But it, it reminds me of Walther's statement in the proper distinction of law and gospel about how without that distinction, without the difference between what law is and what gospel is, the Bible remains a closed book, right? That nobody can read it and actually understand it. They can read it all they want. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Penn, Penn of Penn and Gillette can read the Bible every day like he says he does, and he's not going to see anything because he doesn't have that key, which is the gospel of Christ. The other side of that is I remember as a young man uh, watching, I was working at a pool bar in Northern California and uh, watching Joyce Myers on the TV at the pool bar, and she was preaching on this passage about transitioning from glory into glory. That's how the passage ends. And, and she made it sound as if we're always getting better and always climbing up to a more triumphant life. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of good. I want to be a Christian. I didn't know diddly back then. Now, as you go back to it, is that, that the movement from glory into glory is not the movement into better and better me. It's the movement from law to gospel, from old covenant to new covenant, from the, the ministry of condemnation to the ministry of salvation. And, and what a better glory to say solo dea gloria to when you when it's the cross as opposed to well sinai huh thoughts about walther in the closed yeah. book well and, and and essentially you know the the real key to this too and when that glory is unveiled it has one effect and that is it kills me i mean it just utterly crushes me which is where i need to be um, but uh, i think at the the life conference out in uh, washington dc you actually had a quote uh, in kind of talking about these sorts of things and and uh so I'm floating around the Facebook world mm. and everything right and uh you 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 used a, a good phrase in there that we shouldn't let the guilt of these things right? right because that's what gets in the way when when I'm feeling that guilt and I'm trying to justify my guilt then I'm I'm still trying to I'm trying to veil that right, right. I don't right. I don't want to die I want to save a piece of myself no what I need to do is just be killed by it hmm. um, because only then does the gospel make me alive because it speaks me into life again um, but if I'm still trying to hold on to something for myself well then I'm gonna look for some sort of security I'm gonna look for to build that foundation upon uh, you know, my, my own sense of giving God glory or my own sense of, you know, doing good for my neighbor, whatever it may be, you know, I'm, I'm building on a shaky foundation. That foundation just needs to be destroyed. I need to be dead, completely, utterly helpless. A dead man can do nothing, can say nothing. And then God brings me to life through baptism. Two more pieces that are just kind of fun. Uh, I don't know how, how exegetically sound any of this is, but I love how Moses has a glowing head and they're like covered up. And on Pentecost, their heads are glowing and then they just preach and they give Jesus. And I like how in in uh, the Lord's Supper, not in every congregation, but in most congregations in the Missouri Synod, you'll have a veil over the elements. And then the veil comes off of Jesus' body and his blood and he comes out 
to you so that uh, he is no longer covered, as it were, but the gospel is, is the thing that, that brings it to bear. Um, yeah, cheesy maybe a little bit, but fun to, it's fun to think about anyway. Let's, let's move into paragraph 22, unless uh, Bill wants to jump in. No, you're good? All right. So, we think about the righteousness of reason like this. And again, the righteousness of reason. The fact that you can figure out how to be good. It's not impossible to figure out how to be good in this life. Anybody can do it. You don't need to be a Christian to figure out what that means. We think about that fact this way. God requires this. Because of God's commandment, the honorable works commanded by the Ten Commandments must be done. According to Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian. So God has built or designed his law into the world to guard humanity, that even in our fall, it still curbs us from away from destroying ourselves and running the whole planet off a cliff. Likewise, 1 Timothy 1.9 says pretty much the same thing. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. So those who aren't righteous have this law here to be seen and, and uh, observed in our reason. And we see that if I steal, I go to jail. Oh, I shouldn't steal that. And we actually apply that to our lives. That's God's work, although it's a bit of an alien work. For God wants wild sinners, like Peter, ill, uh, Absolutely. To, to be restrained by civil discipline, the purpose of government, right? We were just did Romans 3, uh, uh, 13, excuse me, a couple weeks ago in his time, that the God is the author of the government, and the government is his minister, both for wrath and for reward. Why? To maintain discipline, as the paragraph continues here. He, God, has given laws, letters, doctrine, rulers, and penalties. And I guess that's the end of the paragraph there, although it does kind of, I'm going to continue through 23. Um, to a certain extent, reason can, by its own strength, perform the civil righteousness. So it's not only that we can figure out you should not murder, for the most part, most of us cannot murder. Yeah? I, mean, I don't know about you guys. I haven't actually killed a man yet, right? Uh, so for the most part, we can kind of manage this thing. Yet, it is often overcome by natural weakness and by the devil pushing it to do obvious crime. So that there are murderers in the world, more so. I do have hate well up within my heart. I do have rage at even those who I ought to consider friends, cause me to turn my back on them, to not be kind to them as I ought to be, to not turn the other cheek when they're not kind to me. We cheerfully credit this righteousness of reason with all the praises that are due. We don't reject this idea that the law is good. This corrupt nature has no greater good. It's like the best thing you can do as a pagan is try to be a good person. Aristotle, a pagan, an unbeliever, rightly says... Neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness. That is, there's nothing better in the world than a virtuous man, or woman as the case may be. And God also honors it with bodily rewards. That is, you can actually get good stuff out of it by doing the right thing. You follow the law, and generally speaking, you don't go to jail, and you maybe even make a living. However, all that being said, right, it ought not to be praised by dishonoring Christ, right? You don't take it and you put it on the cross and say, that's my Savior. And this is where our, our distinction of the three functions of the law, the three things that the law does, is really, really helpful. Here, uh, the apology clearly talks about this first function of the law, how the law comes and it keeps people just by nature of common sense law, things that we can all agree on. You shouldn't be a bank robber. You shouldn't be an axe murderer. Uh, it hurts people's feelings and it breaks their trust in you when you gossip behind their back. Uh, everybody knows this. If it changes how we live or not, well, from time to time it, it does or doesn't. But there's just a certain level of common sense, natural law that's common to all people. 
And this is the first part of what the apology is talking about. Is this natural law as it speaks to everybody? But for us as Christians, this law, when we hear not just you shall not murder, but also anybody who says to his brother, you fool, is liable to the judgment of fire. Well, that takes... And no longer are we talking about common sense law, but we are going to Christ's law where he is calling us to repent for our sin of anger, for our sin of resentment, for our, uh, our selfishness and our impatience with others. And when all that happens, that's a, a different purpose of the law. But the apology starts really well with this first function of the law is to keep you from gross misconduct. I like how you point out there. Life. You point out there though that the there is a, that second use, if we want to call it that, that mirror use, is a revelatory reality, right? That is, I can't have that just really figured out on my own. I have to be taught that. I need God to teach me that. Right. And this is where we see the Psalms again and again talking with us, teaching us that we. Uh, oh Lord, teach me your law that I may walk in your truth. We we need God to teach us his law because if we're just left to our own common sense, that's going to be just as flawed and corrupt as everything else that we turn our attention well, to. Well, you think about who is the most legalistic, justice-pursuing person in American society right now. It is the, the social justice warrior, right? It's they, Their whole thing about how everyone else should shut up and not push the morality on anybody else is based on a very strong conviction about right and wrong. And they have some understanding that there should be equality, that people shouldn't be treated poorly. And yet what is done, and when you at least in, when you see the hate and the rage, right, is it's, it's turned it in on itself and used its self-justification to actually undo uh, the very thing it's trying to do. It doesn't create peace. It creates strife. And I'm not going to blame every single person who's, you know, on the other side of the political aisle for me. But the, the, the hate coming from our desire for justice is, is just how bad we are. And this is where, I mean, on both sides of the aisle and in whatever church you sit in, that when the, when the law rises above its appropriate realm uh, and threatens to become a salvific thing, hmm. you know, if we can just get everybody to obey these rules, everything will be fine. Right. This is when the, the foundations of the universe are shaken. And uh, I, I love, uh, to, Pastor made the point before of talking about glorifying God and worship, you know, there's a nod to that here at the end of this paragraph. Uh, you know, we, we should give this natural law, this law of reason, all the honor it deserves, but it ought not be praised at the expense of dishonoring Christ, of cheating him of his rightful glory, uh, in which he is that righteousness of God that's above the righteousness of reason, that righteousness of God that forgives sinners, mm. that restores us through death and resurrection. And uh, I, I got to, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I got to preach to the uh, uh, reconcilers that are here in town for training this week on uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, the end of that chapter, where Paul wraps up and says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I think it's a very interesting thing that he says, which relates to this here. You know, he doesn't say uh, so that we might strive for the righteousness of God or even see the righteousness of God or know what the righteousness of God is about. But he says so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's when you read all of Paul, you read Romans, we find out that the righteousness of God 
is that he justifies and saves sinners on account of the death of Jesus. And so anything that tries to justify sinners or to justify our existence or to, you know, give us value or worth that's not in the death of Jesus, what's it robbing from? Yeah. It was not just robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is robbing Christ to feed our own our own egos, you know. So, uh, boy, there's a lot of freight to, to me in that last that last little bit of this. Don't, you know, everything we do, look at this and say, now, wait a minute. Does this give Christ his due and therefore give, give comfort to sinners, the thing that's always paired with that uh, in the in the confessions? So, Yeah, I've, I've had a couple thoughts as I'm sitting here listening to my brothers uh, speak and so forth. But on that last one, too, even, even again, the way we sing about God's glory— um, I preached on the uh, in the three-year lectionary series the epistle reading um, from from this last week the the foolishness of the cross right if we want to sing about the glory of God and how He reveals Himself we can sing about the mountains and the trees and so forth uh, as some Christians do but God reveals to us that there is nothing more beautiful than Christ crucified on the cross and the world looks at that and say you th- you find that beautiful. <laughs> that's yeah. foolish. That's stupid. That is a bloody beaten man whose whose biggest accomplishment in life is his death. And we look at that and say, yeah, that's beautiful. Hmm, Nothing more beautiful. Nothing more Amen. beautiful. The mountains, the, the, the bright morning star can't compare with it. And and the stars are quite beautiful. Um, but, but how God has revealed his, himself through the death and resurrection of his son is, is the most beautiful work uh, that he has done. And he has done it for you. And you partake of that in your baptism. Um, yeah, very, uh, very important. But then also on this social justice warrior, the other thought that I had as you guys were talking, um, you know, when when the the object of your faith, again, is a work, right? It becomes your idol. It becomes your sufficiency. And on both sides of the political aisle or all sides and everywhere in between, if if. If you're looking to the works, if that's your foundation, if that's your idol, then yeah, the only hope you have is in making this world a better place. And you're become so focused on that. But when every effort fails, um, you know, you, you just try harder and harder and it becomes exhausting. And you rob yourself of so much peace that when you find out my hope is in Christ who has died for me, risen again, and my eternal citizenship is sealed in heaven. And and come whatever may in this life, whatever brokenness may happen, um, it doesn't matter because my holiness is is flowing forth from Christ. And so I'm going to let that light shine. It's going to naturally produce itself. It's feeding upon God's grace. And 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 that's the salt and light in the world. That's the, you know, that's that's the real the real place that the holiness shines forth because the burden's not on me to make the world a better place. Um it it, it the world is a better place because Christians are in it. True believers are in it. Um but when you set your object upon uh you know the hope of making this world a better place and and trying to spur people on to good works through this law oriented means um yeah that's where Walther and and, and I had Walther prepared for next week cuz we're on for 3 weeks in a row but uh um yeah that's where Walther and his law gospel really has has uh strong words which we'll pick up on next week uh for you know just that that hope that we have when we actually live in the gospel. You got me thinking about uh, uh, singing about the mountains. You said in the trees, and you go, you, know, you throw into that mix. Of course, you got the sky and the sunshine all behind, right? So, but it all seems real nice when you're out on a hike and you can go home to your refrigerator and your and your soft bed and your warm house. But you look closer at those plants and you find some thorns. 
And uh, you, you get out in those mountains at night and uh, alone, you're, you're in danger. And the sun goes down and it gets dark and there are wild beasts around, right? And, and then you look at the cross and what do you see there now? Now you see he's got a crown on and those crown that crown is the thorns of those trees and those plants and all our curse and the, the mountains shake beneath him as he dies and the sun is veiled to darkness that all the terrors of our life is brought to bear on him in that moment in that age and so that yeah there is no greater glory than the cross where all the ugly that we have uh, is literally made to be one with God in the flesh so that God being greater than all of it can just swallow it whole and and by death, he conquered death, as it were. Took took from death's pale brow the crown forever, as Luther wrote as well. Awesome stuff right there. Um, so let's look at paragraph 25, since it's one sentence. <laughs> it kinda can, we got about uh, eight minutes, six, seven minutes left here or so. So it is false that we merit forgiveness of sins by our works. You think? Yup. <laughs> now, think of the practical implications of this, though, because, I mean, we all know this is true. False that we merit. Okay, we get it. We're Lutherans. We're not going to be those Pelagians. But but think of all the opportunities we have practically to fumble this yeah. with our kids, with our neighbors, with our spouses in daily life. Because every time, I'll tell you, you know, we go and say, well... Okay, he did that. Is he really sorry enough that I can let him off the hook? You know, I haven't got my three quarters of a pound of flesh yet. Right, right. What are we denying? But, but this, right? That that Christ has ultimately merited the forgiveness of all sin, strictly by His own blood. You know, so uh, so we're we're at that same risk of of dividing the oh, condine conduit. Well, we we apply that to to the people that are coming to us and, and maybe not coming to us and needing forgiveness, which Christ has so abundantly purchased, and uh, and and we hold back and, and threaten that theology that really should be the core and driving juice of our whole being. I think we act as if forgiveness is the reward for repentance, yeah. right? Rather than giving the forgiveness first, yeah? Yeah, and how often do we think about, uh, you know, we, we try to soften the law when we speak to other people. Yeah. Uh, well, as long as you tried hard, it's okay. Well, as long as your intentions were good, well, if you didn't, you know, full-blown go out and axe murder somebody, a little bit of anger isn't the end of the world. And we try to make it sound okay. We, we, we put a, a little velvet cover on the hammer of the law and don't let the law do its work because we want to be nice Christians. And that is, that is our, uh, our loving intention, it just doesn't work out to be all that loving because we're sheltering these people, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, from the full severity of God's law. And you can't hear the full sweetness of the gospel if you don't hear the full severity of the law. You gave me this this great image of the, uh, some sort of like uh, warrior, uh, rugged, battle-hardened guy with this huge war hammer, and then he like covers it with a velvet bag, and he's like, as he's waylaying and slaughtering, he's like, I am nice. It is soft, right? And that is, that's what we do when we take the law out and try to make it our friend, right? And we're actually just destroying people with it. Instead of speaking with people uh, with the honesty of Christ mm. and speaking the truth in love, instead of doing that, we focus on speaking lovingly and we pull the truth. Uh, and it's imperceptible. It, it looks really small, but this is exactly what we do. It's a temptation that the devil works on me, and I 
hazard a guess, I'm not the only one, not even in this room, who has that temptation of trying to soften the law because I want people to like me. I don't want to go out and be a jerk and have nobody want to listen to me because I was mean to them. And the devil works on me in that way. It's a particular temptation in American society to want to be liked. Two minutes left, guys. Well, I was going to bring in a C.S. Lewis quote here, actually, um, and it comes from his book, The Problem of Pain. And I, and I think it speaks to exactly the nature that we have to live in, because my, my temptation for an idol when I try to make the law soft is that I, I get... I get the idol of sufficiency, hmm. that things are okay. It's just a flesh wound, you know, to use the money <laughs> python, you know, kind of thing. It's not, it's not that bad. Um, but really what I do need, um, where I find true joy, joy in the midst of suffering, joy um, in the life everlasting, is, is at the total destruction. of it. So C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the creature's illusion of sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And this illusion of sufficiency may be at its strongest in some very honest, kindly, and temperate people. And on such people, therefore, misfortune must fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, and and as a pastor, because when I have, you know, nice little Grandma Jones, you know, uh, there, and, and she is just propped up on this sufficiency, and I like old ladies, I, and, and I have a tough time, you know, doing my task, uh, which is to speak law and gospel, um, but, you know, they're very temperate, and they're very nice and mild and gentle people, and, and, and we love them very much, um, but but uh, essentially what, what is best for her, what is best for me, is that this misfortune might just come and crush me, just crush me to death, uh, because there I'll find true life. When you got an infection, you got to go in and get that thing that's causing the infection out. That means you got to lance the boil down. And uh, it's never fun to do, but it is necessary. Oh my goodness, they're leaving me with one minute left. It's necessary to lance the infection. So what is the ultimate infection that we have right now? At least as we're confessing it, the infection is sin. And what is sin? It is the belief that I can justify myself. What did Adam do? Is he took a good world and he tried to make it better by himself. And every attempt to do so, to crawl up higher than God has given us to be, only pulls us down further. There was a famous Roman Catholic cardinal who once said, all of our attempts to bring heaven down to earth have caused only bringing up hell from below. And that is what the doctrine of self-justification must eventually do. The antidote to this is nothing other than Jesus Christ himself on the cross, placarded for all the world to see, not done in a corner, preached as one crucified, the glory of God in the weakness of man all at once. Why? To atone, to pay, to give, to do, to be the answer to all of our sin, the bloodshed for you. Making us one mind too, right, fellas? One mind in the truth. The confession of who Jesus is, what he's done. Conquer matters. We're seeking it every week here, and you got us... Uh, cadre of components or whatever we are coming back for the next two weeks as well so we'll see you next time picking up in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Thank you gentlemen. Peter Hill, Sean Smith, and John Sias. God bless. All right, rock on.